Everybody, let me uh, welcome you really warmly once again to uh, our congregation this evening. Great to have so many visitors from out of town with us. My name is Paul. If we've not met, I'm the minister here, and it is a joy to welcome you. Can I ask you to reach for a Bible uh, and turn to page 1014 or 1 Peter chapter 1? That's where we're going to read from. Uh, you'll have worked out by now. It's a slightly different sort of sermon for us, but. Uh, uh, we're going to read from 1 Peter 1 just as we start, but before then, let me lead us in prayer. Thank you, Almighty God, that we've been able to sing even now, uh, that though tears may last throughout the night, joy comes with morning's rays. Thank you that you are a God who loves to bless your people, to care for us. Uh, whatever the highs and lows we experience in life are, that you are always with us if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus. You promise never to leave or forsake us, but to do good for us and to us and in our lives, and that one day we will be with you forever in the house of the Lord. We pray that as we uh, come to your word now, as we reflect on the truths of Scripture, that we would hear you speaking to us by your Spirit, that you would strengthen us and nurture us in faith and that you would help us to walk in a way that is honoring to you in life, whatever we have going on at the moment. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read them from 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, verses 13 to 25. The Apostle Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
Well, I'm hoping you might want to have in your hand the other insert that was just inside the, the Bible that you were given when you came in. And as you glance down at it, you will see that this is a different kind of sermon series for us. Normally, we work through books of the Bible in total. If you've been with us, you'll know that. Just occasionally, though, we stop and have a slightly more doctrinal series where we try and draw together themes or, or truths of the Bible, everything that the Bible has to say about a, a particular topic or truth, and look at that in a, a slightly more thematic way. The way that we're doing that this time is by looking at some questions and answers from the Heidelberg Catechism. It might seem like a strange thing to do. It was written in 1563, I think. It was written as a teaching manual for young people. You know, that parents are always on the lookout for good resources to help their kids understand and grow in and to own the faith uh, that they've been given. And that was the purpose of the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism just means oral instruction. And uh, all over the world, actually, people still learn these questions and answers as a way to press truth a little bit deeper into their head and into their heart. And for centuries, they've been really useful things. Uh, they've served to protect the unity of the church, and they've served to define the message of the church, because they've said, this is what the Bible teaches, and so this is the message that we're going to believe and proclaim. And at this particular catechism starts with one of the most famous, uh, to my mind, one of the most beautiful declarations of all. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And you'll see the first part of the answer there, that I'm not my own, but that I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say a little bit more about his work in us. We're pretty obsessed with comfort in the West. I won't need to persuade you of that. It's one of our society's biggest idols, isn't it? We try to amass wealth so that we can uh, purchase the material comforts of holidays and spa days and nicer home furnishings, that sort of stuff. We try to surround ourselves with good people so that we can enjoy the emotional comfort that comes from hugs and good relationships and friendships. In fact, you could mount a pretty good case, I reckon, for saying that we're so obsessively as a, as a society cramming our lives full of that sort of material and emotional comfort that it doesn't even occur to most that there is an even deeper comfort out there, something that people and things can never provide. The late journalist Bernard Levin once wrote a, a famous article with the title, Life's Great Riddle and No Time to Find Its Meaning. And uh, this was his take on the West. He said, countries like ours are full of people who have all of the material comforts that they desire, together with such non-material blessings as a happy family, and yet they lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation understanding nothing but that there is a hole inside them and that however much good food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, still their heart aches. 
Uh, even if we don't feel that sense of internal aching, we do well to ask ourselves, where is true meaning found in life? And what hope do I have in the face of death? And you'll know, everything in our culture tells us to look within for an answer. It says you're allowed to invent your own meaning for life. And whatever you choose to hope in is fine for you. I hope we're going to see tonight that true, lasting comfort isn't found by proudly clinging on to our own lives and insisting that we're our own masters and that we've got all of the answers inside us but that true comfort is found in belonging to another. And so the catechism asks, what's your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. You'll see it saying we're not, we don't belong to Jesus in a partial way, but a comprehensive way, body and soul not occasionally, but always in life and death, and not abstractly, but very personally. He is my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I wonder if you can say that. Uh, the rest of the answer on the sheet there comes in these three paragraphs. It's Trinitarian. There's a paragraph about each of the, the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so we've got three points this evening with a verse or two under each. And the first is, I've called the payment of the Son. The payment of the Son. And let me just read that verse from 1 Corinthians 6 that you can see there. Do you not know, says Paul, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And when we talk about comfort, it's, it's not just a feeling, but it's not less than a feeling. You might remember the prophet, God saying famously through the prophet Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. So he's talking about a, a comfort. It is a real strength and hope that arises out of objective fact. God's saying, tell my people that it's going to be okay. Tell my people that they don't need to feel anxious or afraid or overwhelmed because I'm going to do something to deal with the problem of their sin. I'm going to deal with their rebellion against me. So comfort is the, the peace, the courage, the strength, the, the hope that arises out of the mercy and love of God. And so the catechism starts, what's your only comfort? And it's that I belong to my faithful Savior because he has fully paid for all my sins. And that verse from 1 Corinthians is really helpful, isn't it? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. We read from 1 Peter as well, you were ransomed, he could say to Christians. You were bought back by God, not with perishable stuff like gold and silver, but with something far more precious, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the, 
the source then of the peace, the hope, the courage, the, the spiritual calm, if I can call it that, that God wants us to enjoy as his people. And the source of that comfort is that as Jesus was dying on the cross, he was paying in full with his own life the price that I deserve to pay for my sinful actions and thoughts and heart. Um, a story in the press just the other day of a Scottish woman. Uh, she was uh, facing an energy bill of 17,000 um, pounds. She had a very sick daughter, had to run really um, energy-consuming uh, medical machinery at home just to try and keep her daughter alive uh, day by day at a time. The bill was 17,000 pounds. She had very little money. There was no way on earth she could pay. Wonderfully, um, the, the actress Kate Winslet read about the story online and donated all of the money to settle the bill. And I'm sure you can imagine the kind of comfort that flooded into that mum's life on that day, the relief, the joy, the freedom. This is something that is much, much, much bigger than an energy bill for 17,000 pounds. Every time that you or I say or think or or do something that is unkind or impure or untrue every time we ever fail to love God with our, our whole heart, every time we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, you can think of our, our moral debt before God going up and up and up and up and up. And there are days when we do better than others, aren't there? But for all of us, that debt is colossal. And it's serious when God decides that it's time to settle our debt. If we were left to ourselves, there's no way we'd be able to pay that. And debtor's prison, or hell as Jesus often calls it, is no joke. We would be in a terrible plight without him. Isn't it incredible then that along comes Jesus and freely chooses to pay to shed his own blood on the cross, not to pay off his own debt. He was the only debt-free person in, in history, but to pay off the debt for other people, for people like us. And I love the way that the Catechism reminds us how comprehensive uh, this is. He has fully paid for all my sins, if I trust in him, not partially for some of them, but fully for all of them. Here's a couple of implications I've jotted down on the sheet. One is that there's nothing left to pay, because if Jesus has paid for all of my sins in full, you can see that I will never have to pay for any of them. But just enjoy that thought with me for a moment. Let it comfort and provide strength for you. Uh, sins in your past and sins in your future the big sins, the little ones, the public sins, the secret ones, the sins that keep you awake at night, the ones that you've long forgotten, the sins that you've never acknowledged. All of my sins, if I trust in Jesus, have been paid in full by him. That means that I can draw near to God without any fear, it means that I can face death without any kind of foreboding. 
because I am at peace with God himself through the blood of Jesus. That is the only real comfort that there is anywhere in the universe amidst the futility of life and the fear of death. Because it's the only comfort that arises from the objective fact of sins forgiven. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus, that is yours. Implication number two is that we can change. It says in the catechism, he has set me free from all the power of the devil. Because when Jesus was dying on the cross, he wasn't just um, setting us free from the penalty of our sins. That's great. But also from the power of sin and the devil as well, in such a way that they're no longer our master. Now, if you're trying to live the Christian life, you will know that you give in to their tempting voice all of the time. Day after day, you're not the person you should be. I'm not. We know the right thing to do. We don't do it. We know things that are wrong to do, and we choose to do them. Uh, We give in all the time. But the point here that we're being reminded of is that we don't have to. Because Jesus died and set us free from the power of the evil one, we are now free to love and to serve our new master instead. And that's the third implication I've put here. We belong to him. We belong to another. Just glance at the verse in 1 Corinthians again on the sheet. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just paying for our sins, but he was purchasing us for himself. We're all familiar with the idea of purchase. If I purchase a car, ceases to be the property of the showroom or the person I'm buying it from, it becomes mine. Well, you can think of ourselves as as belonging doubly to the Lord Jesus. Uh, We belong to him in creation. He made us, so we're his. We then sell ourselves into slavery to sin and Satan. That's where we'd have stayed. But Jesus bought us back, redeemed us from slavery to sin and Satan and death on the cross. So we're his all over again. We're doubly his. So Paul says, you're not your own. And that is a really, really good thing. I realize that flies in the face of everything that we're told, everything we want to believe. But it is the necessary consequence of Jesus having paid for our sins and set us free from slavery, having purchased us, that I'm not my own, but I belong to God now. And so Paul says, so glorify God in your body. There is challenge in that, of course there is, but there is comfort too. Isn't it great tonight to think you've got nothing left to pay? Isn't it great tonight to think that by the work of the Spirit in you, you now have the power to change and to be a better person? And isn't it great tonight to think that you have a glorious new home to look forward to in the future? That's our first and longest point the payment of the son the second is the protection of the father the protection of the father you'll see the the lines uh, from the the catechism that we're going to be looking at that next little paragraph Uh, again it's such a source of comfort and strength but uh, more important than the lines in the catechism is that verse on the back let me read to us from matthew 10 Jesus asks, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. Uh, in the context, Jesus is uh, preparing his disciples before he sends them out on mission, much the same way he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. And uh, first he tells his disciples they should expect persecution. He says, you're going to be hated, all of you, for my name's sake. But then in our verses, what he's doing is reassuring them that even though they're going to suffer, they don't have to give in to fear because God is in charge of absolutely everything that could ever happen to any of them. Um, I discovered online that the number of hairs on the average human head varies um, according to the color of your hair. So if you're ginger, um, good luck. But if you're ginger, your hairs are quite thick, uh, and so you only have room for about 90,000 of them, whereas if you're blonde, uh, you have around 150,000 hairs. So, you know, less brain, more hairs. You kind of, it, it all evens itself out. You win some uh, you lose some. But it is normal for our hair to fall out. Um, sorry, I've realized just, I'm just trying to offend everybody equally. Uh, then no one feels left out. Uh, typically, do you know, we all lose between 50 and 100 hairs a day. Um, most of you replace them at a much quicker rate than I do. But the point is we lose hair all of the time. Uh, in the shower, on our clothes. We barely even register when it's happening because it's just such a trivial thing. Jesus is saying, you don't even know how many hairs there are on your head, but God does. He's interested enough in your life. He loves you enough that he knows and controls the exact number. And his point is that if your Father in heaven is control of even the most trivial details of your life, then do you not think that he can, you can be sure he's con in control of every other detail as well? So when we're telling about people about Jesus, we're trying to talk to our friends, our family, our colleagues, our neighbors about him, he, he's in charge of whether or not they become a Christian or end up teasing us or shunning us, or even reporting us to authorities these days, he is in charge. And he is in charge of whether we live a long and happy life and die peacefully in our sleep one day, or we're called into the doctors tomorrow and get some bad news. He's in charge. And nothing will ever happen to any of his children that is outside of his will. It doesn't mean we will always understand, of course. Uh, in fact, the timing of this was incredible. While I was preparing this talk a few weeks ago, I was, so I was writing this paragraph. Um, I got a phone call from London to tell me of a, a friend who'd taken his own life, leaving his wife and kids behind. Devastating news, of course. And I've no idea how his widow will cope, but even with that news, she can know that God is in charge. It doesn't mean that he approves of everything that happens to us. He hates evil even more than we do, but he remains in charge. And there is truth, there is comfort in that truth alone, but it is a comfort that I think is multiplied exponentially by the other verse 
on the sheet that's also referenced in the catechism. It reminds us that the God who is in charge is not malicious and that he has no desire to harm us, but that the one who is in charge is for us. That's why that verse on the sheet is one of the most treasured uh, in all of the Bible, one of the most often quoted as well. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Again, not some things apart from the really bad ones, but all things. Because the God who's in charge of every detail promises to use every single detail, even the most devastating, for our own good and for his glory. As he enables us and works through them to enable us to keep trusting in Jesus and to become more like him until the day when we're with him forevermore. And I want to remind us that that is a promise that we can claim. And even when we can't see how it's happening, and even when the tunnel in front of us just looks black and we can't see any light at the end of it, we can still rest in that truth patiently. And I know there'll be many here who'd want to echo my own testimony from the last 30 years of trying to live life for Jesus. That it's been the, the things that have been the greatest sources of pain in my life that I think God has used the most to humble me, to nurture me, to grow me in my faith. And that is because he is a good father to all of his children. And he has promised to lead and guide and guard and protect us until the day when we're finally able to move into our new home and to be with him forever in glory. And in the trials of life, and there are many, there is simply no comfort anywhere else in the universe that is that good. And that's why it says, what's your only comfort in life and death? Brings us to our third point, the payment of the Son, the protection of the Father, and now the power of the Spirit. And uh, in the verses, that, in the sentences that are there on the sheet, it points to a couple of key aspects of the Spirit's work, and we'll take them in turn. The assurance he gives and the desire that he nurtures. And let me read to you those verses from Romans 8. As Paul says to these Christians, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Uh, there is a, a wonderful generosity to the gift of the Spirit. God doesn't just want us to have a place in heaven. He wants us to know that we have a place in his new creation. And that is the work of the Spirit in us. He assures us that we're children of God. Therefore, that we're alive in Christ now and forevermore. How does he do that? He does it through the, the gospel. So what happens is that we hear the promises of God in his word. There is full forgiveness in Christ. 
There is a glorious future in the new creation. And the Spirit works in us to help us to believe those promises. It's not uh, perfect the way that we receive it, so we'll often end up praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But insofar as we trust that the gospel is true and is real for us personally, that is the work of the Spirit in our life. And even the fact of the gift of the Spirit assures us it's like a, a down payment, a first installment, a guarantee, the New Testament would say, of everything that God has for us. But I always want to remind folk that although God does want us to feel safe in his love, our salvation doesn't depend on how safe we feel. We're not saved because we feel safe. We're saved because Christ died for us. We're objectively safe whether or not we feel it. It's a good thing then for us to pray for this work of the Spirit in us. It's good to ask the Spirit to help us to grow in our trust in the gospel. But if you're, you're someone who struggles with assurance, and there'll be plenty here that, that do, we don't need to tear ourselves in, into shreds inside if we don't always feel as safe as we are. We can just rest in the fact that we're safe anyway. You can ask me more about that afterwards if you want to. But in our last few moments, let's think about the, the desire for profound holiness that the Spirit grows in us. That verse in Romans 8 says, all those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. It's an interesting definition of a Christian, isn't it? We know that we're loved by God. We know that we're saved by Jesus. The Catechism says, uh, Romans 8 says, the Christian is led by the Spirit. So Jesus says, come follow me. And then the Spirit works in us actively to help us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Let me put it as a question. Has there ever been a moment in your life in which you've said no to the short-term pleasure of sin? Have you ever chosen to be godly even though it hurt? Have you ever made a costly stand for Christ? Have you ever offered yourself to God as his servant? Here am I, send me. Have you ever loved one of his people, even if you didn't find them easy? That's evidence of the Spirit's leading in your life. And he loves to lead us in paths of righteousness. He loves to lead us, as it puts it, heartily willing and ready to live for our Lord, to grow in the fruit of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's a final implication then for us. I realize we've had a lot to think about already tonight, but here's one more. In Ephesians, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. In Galatians, he makes the same point in the positive. If we live by the Spirit, he says, let us walk by the Spirit. So if we can put it like this, here's a choice that you, you have today, every day. It is a choice. If the, the work of the Spirit in your life is to lead you in paths of righteousness, then how will I live today? 
Will I grieve the Spirit or will I walk by the Spirit? Will I keep in step with him or will I resist his work in me? There's a temptation for us all to have a separation between life and God. We have the sort of the secular bit that consumes us most of the time and then the spiritual. So we know that we love God, but we're so consumed by the busyness of the day to day that we forget actually that we live every moment in the presence of God. And so it's possible for us to go through the motions of life without consciously seeking to keep in step with the Spirit, to recognize the Lordship of Jesus in our life. It's something for us to think and to pray and to talk about. How am I going to live tomorrow, this week? Some of you are on holiday. Some of you are going back to work. Some of you work for churches. Am I going to walk by the Spirit or will I be grieving the Spirit? You will be doing one or the other. Which one's it going to be? Let's end where we began. I suggested we're pretty obsessed with comfort in the West, and if you agree with that, but I think it is one of our society's biggest idols. We're very busy trying to cram our lives with material and emotional comfort, psychological even as well maybe, that we can miss out on an even deeper and ultimate comfort. There is a comfort out there that people and things and well-being can never provide. It is a comfort, it is a peace and a courage and a strength and a hope that arises out of the love and the mercy of God. That's the source. It's found in knowing that we're not our own. It's not down to us to come up with all the answers. But we belong fully and always to another to our ultimate Lord, to the Master, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Son has paid fully for every one of our sins. Hold on to that this week. The Father protects us and always works for our good. Hold on to that this week. And the Spirit preserves us and will empower us in service until we go to be with him in heaven. Hold on to that this week as well. Why don't I pray? as we close. And so, almighty God, we do want to praise you. There's been much for us to think about this evening, but we want to thank and praise you for your work in our life. Thank you that you haven't left us on our own to face the futility of life, to face the fear of death. But thank you that you have worked in our lives, if we know the Lord Jesus, that you've worked in us to buy us so that we belong body and soul in life and death to our faithful Lord. Thank you that he's paid for all of our sins. Thank you that he preserves us now. And thank you that he assures us that we're yours by the Spirit and that he works in us to make us heartily willing and ready to live and serve, live for and serve you. Pray for more of that work in our lives. We pray for a, a deeper sense of these truths and conviction of them. And we pray that they would feed real and deep comfort in us so that we might have courage day by day to go on trusting you, whatever it is that is before us. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.